to another Voices episode of Voices to Votes, the podcast of the Princeton Voter Drive. My name is Mochi. This episode is special because it is our first episode that features someone who isn't one of the founding members of the Princeton Voter Drive. We hope to get a lot more of these in the coming weeks and months. Today, I am joined by Eva to talk about gender equality, fake news, and canvassing. For the first time, I came face to face with someone who said that they were planning on voting for Donald Trump. This is our story and yours, so please stay with us. Today, we're joined by Eva. As my very first question, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Eva?、Um, where did you grow up? Okay, so I'm a fourth-year chemistry PhD student. I come from the tiny upstate New York hippie town of Ithaca. You、no, grew up in Ithaca. I grew up in Ithaca. Wow. Yeah. Normally, I have to tell people, "Oh, it's that town where Cornell is," and then、yeah. they know where Ithaca is. But I was born there, spent twenty-one years there, including my undergrad, and then I moved here. Wow. Twenty-one、yeah. years in Ithaca. Mm-hmm. That's exciting. Yeah, it's a great place to grow up. It's beautiful out there. Do you like the Finger Lakes? <laughs> yes. Actually, the thing I miss most about Princeton is probably like. The outdoors. I mean, Ithaca. Like, apparently, there are like a hundred waterfalls within ten miles. Oh yeah. Princeton is pretty flat. I mean, it's still pretty green, but it's not Ithaca. So. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your day job. What do you study?、Um, you said you're a fourth year in chemistry. What do、mm-hmm. you do? So I work for Tom Muir, and a lot of people in his lab work on epigenetics. So, and I'm one of those people. I study. A protein complex that modifies chromatin. It deposits this modification that turns genes off, and I basically study how this protein complex、um, is affected by other modifications on chromatin. It's a little bit of test tube biology, enzymology. <laughs> yeah, have you always wanted to be a chemist, or this is a roundabout path? How you got so, here? So both of my parents have chemistry degrees.、Um, they. We're both Cornell employees, although neither、mm-hmm. were professors. My dad was a physical chemist, and my mom is a plant geneticist. So I definitely grew up surrounded by science and scientists. And I think going into college, I knew I wanted to do some sort of experimental science,、mm-hmm. but I wasn't sure what. I didn't pick biology because I didn't want to be surrounded by pre-meds. Right. And then I ended up picking chemistry, and luckily I really liked it, so、right. it was a good choice. Right. Are there Any minority groups that you self-identify with? So、uh, my parents are both from Shanghai, although、mm-hmm. I was born in upstate New York. I actually speak Shanghai dialect more than Mandarin、mm-hmm. because I was more or less raised for the first few years with my grandmother. And my parents, they eat very cultural Chinese food. They speak Chinese at home. Your grandparents are in Ithaca as well. So my grandmother lived with us my first seven years, and then she moved back,、okay. and she's passed away now. But Yeah, she was a very strong, I guess, guardian parental figure when、right. I was very young. Yeah, would you say you grew up in a very political family? No, I would say really not at all. I grew up in a very political town, but not、mm-hmm. a political family. My parents wouldn't really talk much about either U.S. politics or Chinese politics.、Mm-hmm. In order to really get them to talk about politics, I, it wasn't really until I learned about. 
things like the Chinese Cultural Revolution at school, and I would, you know, ask my parents about it because they grew up during it, and that right. that was, you know, the only time I could really get them to talk about politics. Right. Which, I don't know. Do you, do you think they're apolitical, or do you think they sort of just keep their views to themselves? I think partially they keep their views to themselves because my Chinese isn't great and their English isn't great, so there's just like that language barrier.、Mm-hmm. Um, as well as I think that they've gotten. To the point where they live a comfortable enough approaching middle class lifestyle that、yeah. they don't have maybe as much to complain about. Do they vote? I don't think my dad has ever voted. My、wow. mother voted for the first time. I think her coworkers are very political, so I think they took her to vote、uh, either two thousand or two thousand and four, and then as a group activity. Yeah, they're <laughs> like they're they're very. Democratic and very liberal, and they're like,、mm. "Oh, you should vote." And then she's like, "Sure, why not?" Or I don't know, something like that. Right.、Um, I did take her to vote with me in two thousand and twelve, and that was exciting. So you consider yourself a relatively political person. You voted every single major election year、sure. and stuff like that. That's true. I don't know if I would consider myself. I mean, I think politically aware, maybe not as politically active. Maybe more so in the past six months,、um, I've definitely become more politically active. Right. Can you tell us a little bit more about what happened to you personally in the last six months that made you change how you view politics? So I've always admired Hillary Clinton as、mm-hmm. um, a girl growing up in New York. She was the first lady. She was our senator. She was an awesome, strong female role model. And I, I started to support her in the primary. I mean, like I thought Bernie Sanders was alright, but I, I don't know. I just really liked Hillary Clinton. And then when she went on to win the primary and、uh, was running against Donald Trump, it just felt a lot scarier somehow.、Mm-hmm. And at that point, I started like donating money to her campaign,、mm-hmm. and somehow I think I put my name down as a possible volunteer on some mailing <laughs> list. I, I never thought anything would happen, but、right. then. One day, I received this phone call、uh, from like the local、um, campaign person, and she was like, "Are you free this weekend to go canvas in Bucks County, Pennsylvania?"、Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Oh, I don't have a car." And she pretty much made it impossible for me to say no. She、right. said, "These are all the times that are available, and if you can come to this place, we can make sure you get a ride." Right. So I was like, "Okay, I'll do it. I'll do it." This is the first time in your life that you ever canvassed. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's possible I would have canvassed for Barack Obama's campaigns earlier,、mm-hmm. but living in Ithaca, New York, it's very liberal already. It's kind of surrounded by it, there's there's pretty much no point in canvassing around where I was. I would have、right. had to drive many many hours to make a difference.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is definitely my first time actually working for a campaign. How did you feel about that? Like, did you talk to a lot of people? Was it a, a meaningful experience? I think it was definitely more meaningful for me than for the actual campaign.、Mm-hmm. I actually heard some very interesting arguments about canvassers from、uh, places like Princeton and Brooklyn actually hurting the campaign, and I can kind of explain that argument to you. I think it was definitely transformative for me. I actually ended up canvassing every weekend from maybe the end of September up until the election. Really? Yeah, I, I just kept going back. Wow. And every weekend they would take us to a different neighborhood, and in Bucks County, around around the Philadelphia Bucks County area, yeah.、Mm-hmm. And 
for the first time, I came face to face with someone who said that they were planning on voting for Donald Trump. Right. And that was a weird experience because, you know, like, they seemed pleasant. They seemed like decent people. Mm-hmm. And we, like, we were given a script. Canvassing is less about changing someone's mind right. than to remind them to actually come out and vote. Because, you right. know, you're, you're never really going to change anyone's mind. Um, it was about voter registration up until the deadline. And after that, it was all about a get out the vote movement. Yeah. I think I was most impacted the second week I went, we went to a very poor black neighborhood in like um, northern Philadelphia mm-hmm. and it was interesting because I noticed that the poorer the neighborhoods were, the nicer the people were hmm. because in a lot of the more affluent neighborhoods, I feel like people um, were very curt with you, they would be grumpy, I didn't get doors slammed in my face, right. but a lot of the times people would, would answer the door as if you know they didn't have time for you, like they right. just had better things to do. Um, whereas in the poor neighborhoods, even though they were pretty, um, they're not in great condition, people were friendlier and they were more willing to talk. And I would knock on some doors and they would express this like weird concern. So I would, we canvassed in pairs and we would go mm-hmm. down the street together and I'd have people ask me like, oh, are you here alone? You shouldn't be here alone. Or like, don't knock on that door. Or, like, yeah. um, they're not really friendly people. Like they were kind of watching out for me. Right. And also people who are poor and black, from my experience, tend to be overwhelmingly Democrat. So that was... Mm-hmm. That was interesting. Did you feel that people in those neighborhoods were very receptive to Hillary Clinton? So, some of them, yes. Others, more begrudgingly so. Um, I had one long conversation with an older man, and I said, I asked him if he was going to vote for Hillary, and he's like, uh, I guess so. And I was like, why do you say that? Is there, you know, anything I can say to help you reinforce your decision? And... He basically put it as he was picking the lesser of two evils. Yeah. Um, and he was, he especially was concerned about economic policy. Like he, mm-hmm. at that point, I think Hillary had very begrudgingly accepted the, or started to promote the $15 minimum wage. Yeah. And he was saying that as a very poor person, if they had made, like, the way he would have fixed the economy was to have raised the minimum wage decades ago. Because the people who actually spend money aren't the richest of the rich. They, you know, reinvest in stocks, which right. helps the economy in its own way. But it's really the poor people who spend money on consumables. Right. And by boosting them up, you really boost the economy up and you yeah. help out a lot of people. Trickle down doesn't work, guys. No, it doesn't. <laughs> um. It sounds good, but no. <laughs> so... You are very inspired by Hillary as a politician. Why do you think that's the case? Like, what do you see in Hillary that represents aspirations for you? I think she's incredibly strong. Mm -hmm. I think she is very flawed, but the fact that she is able to hold her head high, um, despite all of it, the fact that people have given her shit about literally everything from her policies, to her husband, to what she's wearing, to the sound of her voice. I think she has had to face so much more than most of, um, well, certainly all the male candidates, Mm -hmm. but so much more than any other presidential candidate that I can think of. Because she's a woman. Because she's a woman, because of... So I guess a lot of people um, didn't like that she came from this political dynasty. And I think that there are certainly things wrong with political dynasties that they should be scrutinized. Yeah. But I don't think that certainly coming from or because your husband or your parent or someone in your family 
was um, a politician ahead of you, I don't think it necessarily disqualifies you. I think that even if it had not been for her familial connections, she would have been good for the job. Mm-hmm. So I feel like a lot of the criticisms, or the, I mean that maybe just that particular criticism, turned off more people than it should have if they had really looked closely. Yeah. After realizing that Donald Trump was elected, how did you feel? I felt like at first it was definitely a shock, like I didn't really want to accept yeah. it. I really realized how much of a bubble I had been living in, how I was so convinced that the U.S. was heading towards a progressive place um, in terms of especially, you know, social policies with like women and LGBT rights and stuff like that, like just more inclusiveness, but that wasn't the case. And it wasn't just, you know, like the deep south or whatever. So many people voted for him. I just couldn't wrap my head around it. Right. Do you feel like the United States is not something that you thought it was? It still harbors these racist, sexist, deep down inside its zeitgeist or soul, if there can be a soul for a country. I don't think that the U.S. is like rotten to the core or anything. I actually write this blog and I wrote a blog post about this right after the election where, where I basically said, never have I felt more like a minority. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, just the idea that I was in fact living in this bubble because my bubble is progressive and inclusive and all of that. And I just never really connected with people in the Midwest or people in the South that they might actually believe that immigrants are stealing their jobs. They might, you know, their church might tell them that gay marriage is a sin and they aren't necessarily horrible for thinking those things. I think maybe misinformed and Mm -hmm. I might be misinformed about some things as well. Right. But I just felt very disconnected perhaps from a lot of America. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are some people out there are horrible people and assholes, but I, I, I really hope that the majority of Trump voters were not. We actually went down together to D.C. to participate in the Women's March. That's yep. how uh, the first time I really hung out with you. Um, tell us a little bit about your sign. What did it say and what did it mean for you? Um, so my sign said, men of quality don't fear equality. And I got that off of like some Google Doc of sign slogans and I just really liked it. <laughs> um, so I picked that one because it's catchy and I feel like a sign first and foremost has to be kind of, has, have a catchy jingle. But I also consider myself a feminist. And um, I think that that sign, the message in the sign is definitely one that I feel is very true. To you, what is feminism? from your perspective and what does it mean for men, right? Like your sign, your sign is about men. I change my mind every day on what I think <laughs> feminism is. I think fundamentally it has to do with equality of the sexes, whether that is social or economic or equality of opportunity. It's just the idea that one sex is not superior to the other. And because of that, that both sexes or all sexes um, should have an equal shot at getting the things they want and living the life they want. So my sign, men of quality don't fear equality, kind of speaks to a lot of the historical policies where Mm -hmm. men have tried to oppress or control women, possibly because, I mean, they believe that they're superior and they they fear that if they didn't 
legislate so that the tables would be turned. I don't know. Right. Possibly. Yeah. You said you had a blog post about how you never felt like a minority more than you do at that particular time. What do you mean by that? I think mostly a minority as being a woman, person of color, maybe also a scientist, um, but just the idea that Trump had said so many things that were hurtful towards women and towards people of color, and that despite these horrible things he said targeting these demographics, people were willing to vote for him. Mm-hmm. So that they didn't care about protecting the rights of people like me. Or they prioritized what he promised over protecting people like me and other minorities. It definitely seems like minority rights has seen a setback. Especially this free-for-all now that PC culture, quote-unquote, has been defeated. Uh, I don't know. (laughs) So besides minority rights, LGBT rights... Uh, women's rights. What are some other issues that you care about um, politically that are most important to you? So a big one that I've always believed in is freedom of the press. Mm -hmm. Or a functioning democracy relies on an educated public which elects officials to represent them. And most people don't have the ear of the president. Like we don't get updates from the president or from our senators. We rely on the press to be the link between the public and those elected officials. And if that link isn't there, or if it's corrupt, how can we have an educated public? And how can we have a functional democracy? Right. And to me right now, with all the talk about fake news and Donald Trump um, shunning reporters from certain like groups is terrifying. It's one of the most terrifying things. Because it, it influences what people perceive and what people care about and what how people hold their elected officials accountable. Yeah. But when you mean freedom of the press, do you mean literally it should be a free-for-all? Or there should be some sort of accountability for the media to the general public in terms of what a standard of truth is? I, I think that ideally people should be able to separate good news sources from bloggers in their basements or <laughs> right. I feel like partially that's it's awesome that anyone can witness something and tweet and then you can immediately get the update or that you have small grassroots media movements right. but I think that people should still respect institutions like the New York Times or CNN or even Fox News because those are journalists by, by their career and mm-hmm. their livelihood depends on them reporting thoroughly and truthfully because if you are a like a blogger and you mm-hmm. lie like so what there's no accountability if you are the New York Times and you start falsifying quotes you're gonna lose your job hmm. and I think that makes um, certain news outlets more reliable and people should understand that right you don't think the incentives are aligned nowadays where people from the press sensationalized news and they could potentially gain more from that than uh, than reporting the truth and the only truth? I mean, I think of course it's a problem that all news exists to sell. If you can't make money off of it, right. then you will never hire reporters, it, it will never happen. I think that I still respect some news sources like the New York Times put out a mission statement, and it was I, I read it, and it was very uplifting about mm-hmm. their actual their journalistic mission. I mean, there will always be news providers or that sensationalize, and people will always enjoy reading it. But I hope that 
people will know better than to get all of their news from, from one source. Of course, right. I'm like, you know, hoping these things right, will people. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. But... No, I mean, it's a, I think it's a very, very important issue. And it's one that both sides have pointed to, right? Like both sides are claiming fake news. And it seems to be a persistent problem nowadays where news comes pre-digested for you. It's not just you're presented with the facts, you're presented with the facts and the partisan analysis that you choose to get from that outlet. How do you think th this problem of the uh, echo chamber can be resolved? Or are we sort of destined to be stuck in an echo chamber because of the people that we associate ourselves with? I think that when it comes to social media, it's going to be hard because if mm -hmm. you look for an opposing opinion, you might just end up in like some sort of snarky comment war with right. someone you don't know halfway across the country, and I don't know if that's the best way. Right. Um, I don't know any instance where someone's mind has been changed over yeah, Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that more than we realize, we encounter people whose opinions are different than ours. Mm -hmm. um, like when I went home to Ithaca for Thanksgiving, a lot of my like old like high school classmates and I were talking about how aghast we were at the, about the elections, but over Thanksgiving dinner, we would have, you know, family members in Illinois who love Trump. And I think just listening to the opinions of the people around you who mm -hmm. may have different opinions is a place to start. And not just being like, no, you're wrong. Like, stop talking. If you don't agree with me, go away. Right. And yeah, I think it really does start with family or coworkers, the people you come in contact every day. Yeah. You, they might not feel comfortable talking about politics with you, but I don't know, like, let them be comfortable and be more receptive towards it. Don't just talk, listen. Yeah, absolutely. So besides freedom of the press, is there uh, other issues that you care deeply about? I guess as a scientist, how science is perceived and digested by the public. Mm -hmm. Stuff like anti-vaxxers and climate change deniers and like terrify me. And it's not just the right wing either. I mean, usually we accuse Republicans of denying climate change, but liberals are scared of GMOs and right. I think there's very little basis in that either and it's weird how those issues ended up on those particular sides yeah and I'll be like reading the science pages of like CNN or Fox News or something and I'll be like oh my god that's so wrong that's so grossly oversimplified but non-scientists will read these things and digest them and maybe understand them and believe them mm -hmm. um and I think that that they're not necessarily wrong for that because I'm sure when I read like the business pages I'm like oh, that sounds horrible, and then the business people mm -hmm. will be like, that's totally wrong. Like, they right. oversimplified it. I think it's a very hard problem deciding how to most efficiently communicate science. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you think it's the, the job of scientists to sell their work better? Or it's something with the policymakers making sure that people have a science education growing up, or maybe a combination of both? I think definitely the combination of both. I think science is an important part of education. But I also believe that scientists have the duty to educate people, educate the public in what they do, because so much science funding comes from taxpayers. Yeah. And taxpayers have the right to know what they're getting in return for, you know, the taxes that they pay. So, yeah, a bit of both. It's It seems like a, a little bit of a difficult problem, especially given that we, being scientists, work in very, very obscure topics. Yeah. We are literally at the very frontiers of knowledge, 
but that frontier looks very weird to anyone who isn't out there. Is there maybe a better way that we could think about organizing academia such that people would have an easier time understanding what we do? Or you can't do both in the sense that you can't try to further science and also catch everybody up at the same time. I think that scientists should be able to speak about what they do to all audiences. Mm -hmm. So obviously there's the discussions that go on within a research group, but then there's also the arguments that you make when you apply for a grant Mm -hmm. where you have to include the details, but you also have to tie it back to usually how you're helping humanity in some way, either green energy or curing cancer or whatever. And I also believe that everyone should have their own version of the elevator speech where that they can give their parents, their friends, where you might not explain, you know, your own project in any detail, but they, it'll be something where they can be like, oh yeah, like I get why you do what you do. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you can't explain what you do to a five-year-old, you don't understand it. Yeah, no, that's, that's probably very true. You brought up a good point earlier saying that science denial comes from both sides, which gets me thinking, how do you feel about the partisanship in U.S. politics in the sense that you have to pick a side and there's a known two sides to this equation, either you're Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal. Is this the way that people ought to think about politics? I think that there will always be sides. You always side with the person who best represents your interests. I feel like partisanship is not necessarily bad when you have more than two parties to pick from. But when you only have two parties, you get that problem where if the parties are pretty even, you get like massive gridlock. I guess what I'm trying to say is that we are deciding on a variety of issues, right? And having this one dimensional scale on where you lie drastically reduces the complexity of how we think about the world Mm -hmm. in a way that isn't necessarily helpful. Uh, That's my opinion. But uh, part of my thesis for doing these interviews is I'm Mm -hmm. trying to get a feel of how much variety, how much variation of thinking there is in the world. Sure. Uh, Especially given the fact that we live in Princeton and we are theoretically in this bubble, this echo chamber, right? Like how much variation, how much variability is in this echo chamber is what I'm trying to find out. And I guess my, my question to you is... Do you think this is the right sort of way to organize ourselves? Like, I was thinking about this the other day, right? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense that liberals are both anti-gun and pro-abortion in the personal freedom sense, right? Like, if you are very into personal freedoms, you should be like, oh, I'm pro-gun and pro-abortion. And the other side would be like, I think people should be held responsible for to do things. So I'm anti-gun and anti-abortion. So like the the way that we have set up these national debates doesn't seem like it's often organized in some sort of logical way. Yeah, and I believe that there probably are a lot of people who identify as liberal who may be pro-abortion and pro-gun as well. I think that people definitely fall not on this binary spectrum, but when you only have two parties, you are forced to pick one or the other. Yeah. Um, and I think that maybe the problem was that, I mean, partially these weird combinations of views are for historical reasons. It's like 
the Democratic Party has always had this stance on these issues. Right. And over time, they've definitely gotten more extreme. And I feel like at some point it will collapse. It has already started to collapse with the formation yeah. of the Tea Party right. versus more classical conservatives. And um, maybe you're seeing a bit of faction factioning in the in the like left-wing Democratic Party as well. Yeah. And maybe following this collapse, you'll get more moderates. And I don't know where we'll end up. Yeah. But I doubt that it's sustainable to keep you know dragging to the extremes yeah i guess what i'm trying to ask you is from our conversation thus far i would think you identify yourself as a liberal right yes but is there anything that you disagree with you know your the liberal stereotypical beliefs that are that are you know different from from what what uh you would normally think democrats believe in um, so I think that gun rights is an interesting one. I am not opposed to people owning guns. I think that people who own guns should be educated about it. And I do support things like mental health and background checks and stuff like that. I was having a conversation with a friend earlier and she was talking about um, how conservatives typically advocate for smaller government and liberals uh, advocate for, you know, more regulation and more oversight. And she believed in a lot of the rights going to the states because the whole country is not necessarily homogeneous. And yeah. I found myself agreeing with her a lot. And that's not a classically liberal position. Right. Um, because, yeah, I mean, maybe if you live in Alaska where the population is very sparse, you might need a gun because the police might not get to you in time or because yeah. there are bears and stuff like that, but right. you don't need that in a... An inner city. Yeah, or a very <laughs> I don't know. dense, a, even like a densely populated state like New Jersey, mm -hmm. um, which I guess there are bears here, but I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow. Sometimes, I, yeah, I believe that it... It varies so much. The demographics vary so much from state to state mm -hmm. that it doesn't. It's not always appropriate for the federal government to be making all the rules. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, that's actually a really nice transition to the next thing that I was thinking about asking you. Is that I know you started participating in local politics a little bit. Uh, you and I went to the Princeton Democratic Community Organization, yeah. PCDO, no Community, Community yeah, Democratic right. Organization. Mm -hmm and saw the debates for the four people who are running for New Jersey governor on the Democratic side. Apparently there are six now. Oh, really? At the last meeting they mentioned it, I don't know who the other two people are, but yeah. uh, it has grown. What is the role of local politics to you versus national politics? So I guess after this election, part of feeling frustrated was like, the feeling that I couldn't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. So I started looking more towards local politics. I mean, I'm not... I will probably only spend about five years of my life in Princeton, but in those five years, probably the decisions of local politicians will affect me as intimately as some of the ones made by national mm -hmm. politicians. So I thought it only made sense to educate myself more on what my local elected officials were doing. Right. Did you go to this uh, last event that you were telling me about? Yeah. So there was a meeting on Sunday um, where they had the candidates for the state assembly, which is, I guess, the lower mm -hmm. whatever. The, lower like, house the, of yeah, the, the lower New house. Jersey legislature. Right. That, <laughs> And that was very interesting. They had the three different candidates, including the incumbent, Andrews Wicker, who's pretty much a house favorite, like people were like cracking jokes and like he he had obviously spoken there before. Yeah. But 
it, like there were a couple things that I found particularly interesting. This is also by the uh, PCDO. Yes. Yeah. Right. So these are all Democrats there. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were three Democrat Democratic candidates. Um, so after the candidates all gave like a little speech, like why they were running, maybe yeah. their platform, and then the audience members had the chance to ask them questions. And I think the most interesting question of the night was about the $15 federal minimum wage that had been right. proposed by um, Bernie Sanders and the, uh, later Hillary Clinton. And I think Swicker actually didn't talk about it, but I guess he, um, his precedent was that he had supported the $15 minimum wage, but the other two candidates were hesitant. And that kind of made me think because after the national election, I feel like it was so ingrained in my brain that Democrats support the $15 minimum wage. Right. It's, it's one of the Democratic causes. And these two people, one of them was a social worker and family law practitioner. And then the other guy was a retired businessman. Mm-hmm. And they were both saying that they were kind of hesitant to support this. And they both gave their own examples. So um, the the guy said that like his teenage son used to work at like a sub shop part time. And he didn't think that he necessarily deserved to make as high of a wage as someone else who was working there full time. Like the woman was just joking that she didn't trust her teenagers to be making that kind of money. <laughs> but they both gave examples of like how it might affect local businesses, like something like Small World Coffee. Right. Where you, if you bump up um, one employee's pay, you have to, you can't just ignore everyone else. You have to bump up everyone proportionally or else right. it seems unfair. And then it's harder to afford as a small business and you might have to lay off employees mm-hmm. and they're all these consequences down the line that you might that like you know $15 minimum wage sounds good but there are it could mean less jobs for people exactly yeah like definitely so was there an endorsement at the end yeah I mean so there was a little bit of a squabble like there was a movement to endorse like the whole slate of candidates Mm -hmm. and then like someone else moved to endorse separately because of this whole minimum wage discussion Ah. but then that got passed over and they ended up endorsing everyone by like a show of hands so all three candidates got endorsed by the yes. PCDO. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What, what other stuff were brought up? Uh, they also had the guy running for sheriff speak, and he spoke a little bit about prison. There's actually... The debate got a little bit hot. They're talking about the Trenton police and whether the Trenton police would help ICE mm-hmm. or Homeland Security if they wanted to, like, basically deport illegal immigrants. Yeah. And the sheriff, he was saying that he would not volunteer his men to, like, obviously deport people who weren't especially aggressive criminals. If they just happened to be, if there was a criminal raid and they found someone else who happened to be there and happened to be legal, he would not go out of his way to incarcerate them, which I think a lot of, a lot of, like, sheriff's departments have been saying around the country. But a lot of people were really pushing him to say, will you put this in writing? that you refuse to co- to collaborate with yeah. ICE or whatever, and he just said, I couldn't do it. And I understand that because he risks losing his job if he does certain things, mm. but people got pretty upset about that. Yeah. I mean, are, are there any local issues that you care deeply about? Andrews Booker said something very interesting. He said mm-hmm. that New Jersey has the highest concentration of um, scientists and engineers anywhere in the world. Mm. Which I thought was really awesome. Right. Um, but it kind of makes sense between Princeton and Rutgers and all the pharma companies. But um, so this was in response to someone saying, if you could say, if you could, you know, make one argument to someone why they should vote for you, what would it be? And mm-hmm. he said that 
Um, so he's at Princeton Plasma Physics, and he's a scientist, and he said that he believes that the way to boost the New Jersey economy is to boost it in, like, technical and science jobs, not necessarily PhD-level jobs, but right. just training people to fulfill jobs at all education levels simply because those are the jobs that are really looking for people in New Jersey. So Yeah. That's pretty cool. I thought it was awesome. <laughs> I, I, I love I, it when I, scientists are, you know, do more than just science. Yeah, yeah. Andrew Zwickert is an outstanding guy. Sagar actually sent him a postcard and he responded via really? email. Oh. Uh, he's like, well, shout out to Andrew Zwicker if you're listening, but he said he'll try to check out our podcast later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we love you. We hope you get reelected. <laughs> that's, that's really exciting. So if you had any message to any politician out there, who would it be and what would you say? I don't know if I have one person in particular. I, I really like the uh, New York State junior senator, Kirsten Gillibrand, mm, who replaced right. um, Hillary, actually, when she left her Senate position. Yeah. I hope that one day she will run for president. I think that she's awesome. <laughs> yeah. As for what I'd say, take whatever Donald Trump says and do the opposite. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think, finally, I want to ask you, so... Can I get some sort of commitment from you to do a political action to get civically involved? What would you do? I've done a little bit of phone calling and letter writing. I think that if I were to do one more thing, it might be to volunteer for a campaign in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. I haven't really thought about who yet, if that's for like the governor or the um, state legislature. Mm -hmm. But I think that I would hopefully be able to do some good there. Hmm. Have more of an impact than, you know, just writing letters. Yeah. Or more of an impact than canvassing for Hillary. Yeah. Um, to, to go back to that, actually. Um, so the first PCDO meeting I went to after the election, they had this guy talk. And they invited him to talk before the election, so that he thought he was going to give a victory speech. Right. And then it went, he had to completely rewrite it. But his speech was basically all the things that Hillary did wrong, mm -hmm. which was brutal to hear, but I, I kind of appreciated hearing it because at that point, everyone was still like, oh my God, how did we lose? People are just horrible, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And one of the things he talked about was actually the grassroots like canvassing movement. Mm -hmm. How Hillary Clinton, especially around the tri-state area, has so many volunteers, so they, um, the campaign has a budget to hire canvassers. Yeah. And they didn't even touch that budget because they had so many volunteers. But like when I was canvassing, most of the weekends we were knocking on the doors of like blue-collar, white, working-to-middle-class Americans. And most of the volunteers were coming from super liberal, diverse places like Princeton or Brooklyn. And when right. a flamboyantly gay 20-year-old Brooklynite knocks on your door, you might smile politely and listen to what he has to say. But when right. he leaves, that's not going to do shit. Right. Um, so, like, he was, this guy was arguing that maybe the, the volunteer canvassers actually hurt her, her campaign. And that, to me, was a little bit heartbreaking. Right. Um, but it was... I'm, I'm still glad he did it. But I think that maybe... In a more local election, um, where I maybe have a closer connection to the people whose doors I'm knocking on, yeah. maybe I can make more of a positive difference. It's uh, actually kind of funny, because I 
have always been like my voter registration and my permanent address is still in upstate New York. Uh-huh. And during the day of action, I stopped by like the register to vote table. Yeah. Um, and that was because I ran into Matt King, I guess I was yeah. me in the hall and he was like, I just registered to vote in New Jersey. Did you know you can register in more than one state? And I was yeah. like, no, what? So I, I registered to vote in New Jersey that day because I didn't realize that I could be registered in more than one state. So that's awesome. You did a, yeah. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, well, like, if you want to register more people to vote... I, I told more... my lab mates after that. I was like, <laughs> did you know? Yeah. Um, because, I mean, New Jersey's the only one holding these elections this year. It's not like they're going to double vote for a presidential election or anything. Right. So. New Jersey is one of those states that has a governorship re- yeah. election it's this a, year. It's New Jersey only, and Virginia, right? Only New Jersey and Virginia. So yep. if you can transfer your registration here, please do so. <laughs> yeah. We need every vote out here. Absolutely. So yeah, well, thank you so much Eva, for, for talking to us and sharing your views. I hope we can keep on the good fight and, yeah, and we'll speak to you again soon. Yeah, thanks for your time. Thank you so much for listening to another Voices and Votes episode. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave an awesome review on iTunes. If you live in or around Princeton and would like to share your voice on the podcast, please contact us at voices to votes at gmail.com. Special thanks to Frederick Grace for the artwork and Jamal Williams, aka DJ Motion Correct, for the music. We'll be back soon, so stay tuned.